Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back everybody. It's lovely to have you with us once again. Yes, thank you for joining us for part two of our Washington DC sniper episodes. Mark, where did we get to last week? So we went right back to uh, October the 2nd, 2002. So it was just for context, just over a year after 9-11 happened. And the environment within the USA, of course, at the time was that of a heightened security state. And we have from October the 2nd, right up until October the 11th, when we left off part one, what is essentially a nine day killing spree by a maniac with a rifle, a high powered rifle, a guy who is taking out members of the public that don't conform to any particular profile. They are young, old, even a child has been shot. And he's taking out members of the public as they drop their kids off at school, as they fill up for gas at a gas station. And the police are desperately trying to get on his tail, but are really struggling to get a step ahead. Because this isn't your average serial killer. This is a spree killer. There is no victim profile from which they can build a character around the perpetrator so really difficult task for the police and they are desperately and frustratingly trying to find who is responsible and and we have numerous members of the public dead in dc a city that is now essentially on lockdown so before we pick back up in the story let's say a huge thank you to our newest patreon supporters so we have shaz porson pip leesk laurie mahaney M, Gail McKenzie, Michelle Scrivens and Natalie. Thank you so much to all of you and to all of our Patreon supporters. And if you'd like to join these guys, if you're thinking about whether or not you want to sign up for Patreon, we thought we'd just share some of the things we think are really great about being a Patreon member. So if you sign up to our most popular tier on Patreon, you get access to 23 episodes of Crime Wave. So Crime Wave is our Patreon exclusive fortnightly podcast where we basically chat about topical true crime stories that are in the news at that point so it's kind of 30 to 40 minutes isn't it Mark it's not a full episode it's not full cases either we're just talking about things that are going on sometimes they're in the middle sometimes it's just been a conviction but anything that's piqued our interest and we always say crime wave is reflective of why we got into true crime podcasting because it is basically you being a fly on the wall of us when we used to work together and we would talk about these topical true crime stories making the news so yeah it's um it is just kind of coming into that inner circle and and hearing our take on on what's happening we've just talked about timothy schofield so if you want to know what what we thought about that then head over to uh to patreon we also release regular bonus episodes and we've got a back catalogue of over 40 waiting for you right now on our most popular tier at Patreon. And we've taken a deep dive into all sorts of different cases over there exclusively on Patreon. So that's Jimmy Savile, the Suffolk Strangler. We covered the downfall of X Factor contestant Danny Tetley. That was a super interesting episode. We also looked at the very tragic murder of soap star Gemma McCluskey. So lots of bonus episodes waiting for you and released on a regular basis too. We have Book Club. So this meets online every three months and we're actually due to meet um, probably in about a week and a half when this episode comes out. So that's really exciting. Yeah, on the 18th. Um, we actually had Colin Sutton, my absolute hero, join us twice, which was really lovely. And that's a great chance for us to chat with our Patreon supporters and 
yeah, we, we all read the same book. We all have a little discussion and it's just lovely to share our thoughts and hear from other, other listeners. Um, it was a little bit uncomfortable when you guys all read my book because that was, you know, it's, it's me, but that was really exciting as well. And it was really, really lovely. So that's always a really fun element as well. It is. And we always invite the author of the book along and sometimes they are able to make it. So that's always great. We also have regular competitions over at Patreon and we release ad and sponsor free episodes of Seeing Red early over on there. You can listen to all content that we release through Patreon, either on the Patreon app. It's dead easy to listen to it that way. Or you can listen to it through your existing podcast provider unless you're on Spotify because they're a bit awkward. Of course, as well, your support makes a massive difference to us in the show, um, as it means we can continue to invest in providing content and keeping that show going. It's just incredible the fact that we say this all the time, but the fact that people are able to and want to support us monetarily is just amazing. It is. And actually over a thousand of you have signed up to Patreon to support us there since we started Seeing Red. And there's no minimum term. You can cancel your subscription at any time. And it only takes a couple of minutes to sign up. And it does, as Bethan said, it makes a massive difference and it really is starting to make a huge difference for us. So if you are able to and you want to support us and you want to gain access to all that stuff, please do it. Head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. So when we finished last week's episode, we had just had a little chat about the police tip line. And this continued to operate despite the enormous overwhelming volume of calls coming in at all times of the day and night. The police tried to follow up on as many leads as possible, but they were far outnumbered and simply couldn't keep up. And yeah, it must be so tricky, mustn't it, Mark? We were talking before to you have to take everything at face value. You have to investigate everything but you're going to be getting some absolute nonsense. What annoys me most is, and we touched on it last week, the hoax callers that you get. And I remember you did a case, Beth. And Wearside Jack, yes. Wearside Jack, of course. So, um, and, and what Wearside Jack had done, he'd phoned or he'd phoned, he'd sent a tape recording, I think, to the papers or to, and to letters, the police. Yeah. And letters, uh, pretending to be uh, the Yorkshire Ripper. And um, that derailed the investigation into the genuine perpetrator and enabled the perpetrator to, to go on and commit further murders. So, you know, it was just terrible, the repercussions of, of somebody phoning up a tip line and uh, being a hoax caller. However, eventually, one police officer who was tasked with taking calls on the tip line noticed something strange. He'd taken several peculiar calls that sounded like they were coming from the same caller. So the caller was a male who sounded young and had a regional accent, and he would often begin by demanding to speak with the chief of police or someone with higher authority. And when he was denied, he'd become agitated. He'd ramble on for several minutes about his intention to commit further murders unless he was paid $10 million, at which point he'd usually be dismissed as a hoaxer and be cut off. The police officer learned that he wasn't the only one who'd heard from this guy. Several other officers staffing the tip line had heard from him too. So feeling that it may be worth looking into, the police began making inquiries into this caller. On October 14th, 2002, the sniper claimed his next victim. 47-year-old Linda Franklin was loading hardware goods into her car with her husband in the car park of a Home Depot in Falls Church, Virginia, when she was shot in the head and killed instantly. Again, somewhat unsurprisingly, the sniper skillfully evaded the police and slipped away into thin air, as he had done so many times before, bringing his death count to ten. Can you imagine being her husband? You're just both packing up the car and then suddenly 
she's gone like what the hell do you do like you get home with all your like your shopping and everything like what the hell the thing is as well there'd be blood everywhere so her husband would have been covered in her blood and brain matter and skull fragments it's just grotesque to think about but that's a reality of it and the the shock of of that happening and losing your beloved wife so suddenly it's just horrific yeah however this time a witness came forward to report that he had seen a middle eastern looking man crouching behind a white or cream colored van that had a broken tail light in the moments before the shot was fired now this witness hadn't actually seen the suspect take a shot nor had he seen this man carry any kind of weapon but he said the sight of the man struck him as very suspicious With not much else to go on in terms of clues, the police issued a public alert in which they urged everyone to be on the lookout for the van. However, not long afterwards, detectives were able to obtain new CCTV footage taken from outside the hardware store, and it was soon confirmed that the van in question was not involved in the shooting. And I'll be honest with you, the person who's hiding and crouching is probably crouching either to fix something or pick something up, or acting in a bit of a suspicious manner because you're going to be acting weird when you're scared of a shooter in your local area. So it's, I guess it's a bit indicative of the time as well, a Middle Eastern looking man when you're this this soon after 9-11 and people are having these worries, aren't they? So yeah, this wasn't, this wasn't the van. And once again, the police were left empty handed. And then, three days later, on October the 17th, the mystery caller returned. This time, instead of dismissing him, the police operator encouraged the man to speak freely. The caller again angrily accused the police of being bad at their jobs, demanding insight into how far along they were in their investigation. The more the operator engaged with the suspect, the more he opened up. And then, after about 25 minutes of angry rambling, the suspect gave away the most compelling clue that the police had had since the attacks began. The caller began to boast about his genius and elaborated about an unsolved robbery and murder that he'd carried out in Montgomery, Alabama a few weeks prior. He goaded the police for being too incompetent to solve the crime and once again demanded his $10 million ransom. It didn't take long for the detectives listening in to correctly figure out which incident this caller was talking about. So on September the 21st, four weeks earlier, Claudine Parker, a 52-year-old liquor store clerk in Montgomery, Alabama, had been shot in the chest and killed during a robbery. Her co-worker, 24-year-old Kelly Adams, was critically wounded with a shot through the neck but survived. The killer had fled the scene immediately afterwards and hadn't been caught. However, what the caller didn't seem to be aware of was the fact that Alabama-based detectives who were investigating the incident had lifted a fingerprint from a gun magazine which had been clumsily left behind by the killer. And better yet, they'd run the print through the national database and had successfully linked it to a suspect. However, the Washington detectives' excitement soon turned to complete bewilderment because the suspect was a 17-year-old boy named Lee Boyd Malvo. Malvo was a delinquent petty criminal who had no military training whatsoever. He'd been born in February 1985 to Jamaican immigrants Leslie Malvo, a mason, and Una James, a seamstress. Despite having had relatively good grades and being a talented athlete, he was plagued by poverty and misfortune throughout his life. His parents went through a messy separation, and Malvo spent his time moving between Jamaica, Antigua, and the USA. Malvo was neglected as a child as his parents were often absent, he was left in the care of others and was thus barely supervised. 
Malvo's background left the detectives scratching their heads. How could this teenager with no special training and no major criminal background be the individual responsible for expertly slaughtering more than 10 people whilst also managing to evade capture and stay one step ahead of the police at literally every turn? Nothing made sense and this prompted the detectives to theorise once again that Malvo wasn't acting alone, that he may well be just one small component in a much bigger and more sinister machine. For me, this is one of the really disturbing aspects of this case because, in a way, if there was just one shooter, I could accept it because that kind of stuff does happen. A lone gunman, a lunatic out there taking out people for whatever agenda they have. But I think when there's two people, two people have come together with the same aim the same beliefs and values, and it's quite rare that that would ever happen. Although uh, we'll go on to hear about Malvo and how he was manipulated into this, I guess. But even so, it's just so disturbing when you've got two people carrying out heinous crime like this together. It just always bothers me that bit more than if it were a lone gunman. Yeah, because you just think like neither of these people even had a moment where they managed to talk the other person down or I round. think that's what it is. I think Isn't that's I think you hit the nail you, on the head. Yeah. Yeah. Because if me and you were like when me and you have conversations about stuff, we've both got our own different ideas and it's very unlikely that we're then going to both go absolutely crazy off the rails. If I think of something that's a bit of a bonkers idea, you're going to be able to kind of go Beth and really or you know, and we're just people do a podcast. It's a bit different. But yeah, these two people, they're just egging each other on, I guess, and or a group of people. They, there's this kind of mob mentality. Yeah. Yeah, even when it is just two of them, there's still some of that psychology would come into play, I'm sure, of wanting to impress each other or feeling accountable to each other's mission on this. So, mm. yeah, I just find it so much more interesting and so much more disturbing, just as an aside. Yeah, I agree. Malvo's whereabouts were, at that time, unknown. However, detectives soon learned that Malvo had spent some time in a homeless shelter, and he'd recently become closely acquainted with a former soldier named John Allen Muhammad. According to several of Malvo's friends and associates, Muhammad had become like a father figure to Malvo, and some even speculated that they had been in a relationship and living together. It was also understood that the pair had recently gone missing, and all attempts to contact them had been unsuccessful. The police began digging for information about John Allen Muhammad, and with every new detail, they became more and more confident that they were on the right track. Before we find out exactly what the deal was with this pair, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Born John Allen Williams in 1960 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, he had been abandoned by his father as a toddler after his mother had died of cancer and he'd spent most of his childhood living with his grandfather. In 1987, at the age of 27, he had become a Muslim and had joined the Nation of Islam. Williams then changed his name to John Allen Muhammad in October 2001. 
It was later claimed that, at some point in his life, he had been radicalised and had openly boasted to his friends how he admired and modelled himself after Osama bin Laden. He also openly and unapologetically expressed approval of al-Qaeda and the 9-11 attacks. Detectives also learned that Mohammed was twice divorced. His second ex-wife, Mildred Mohammed, sought and was granted a restraining order after alleging abuse. Mohammed had been arrested on federal charges of violating the restraining order by possessing a weapon, and under US federal law, those with restraining orders are actually prohibited from purchasing or possessing guns, which I think is a really fascinating point and actually a really good thing. However, I suppose you can get hold of guns in other ways, not necessarily legally. Well, you can, but it's still more difficult. So it is a barrier in place. And I was really pleased to see that because I didn't know that. And we're always quick to kind of jump on America with their gun laws. Um, but actually, it does show it is, it's not, yeah, and it's not as easy to get a gun. Uh, I know we talked about it in a previous episode a few months ago. It's not as easy as you might think. I think that was in the American Murderer episode that Mm -hmm. we did um having been inspired by the the film on that so theorizing that malva and muhammad were roaming around the district in muhammad's car the police announced publicly that they were on the lookout for a blue 1990 chevrolet caprice with the license number nda217 and urged the public to contact the police urgently should they see a caprice acting suspiciously Whilst all of these new exciting developments within the investigation were rapidly unfolding behind the scenes, the sniper or snipers were still at large, and they were not done killing. On October the 19th at 8pm, a 37-year-old man named Jeffrey Hopper was shot in the stomach in a restaurant car park in Ashland, Virginia, about 90 miles south of Washington. His wife Stephanie called out to passers-by who phoned for an ambulance, and Mr Hopper actually did survive his injuries. This time, the police discovered an envelope containing a handwritten note pinned to a tree in the approximate location where they believed the shot had come from. The rambling, messy content of the lengthy letter accused the police of ineptitude and concluded with a ransom demand of $10 million to make the killings stop. The note was successfully kept a secret from the media this time, as the detectives quickly established this link between the strange caller and whoever had left the note. Leaving the note would prove to be a costly mistake by the killer, however, when forensic investigators were able to lift a small DNA signature from it. However, the DNA did not match anyone on the FBI's criminal DNA database, so no positive identification could be made from it. And here again, I think when we're potentially talking about a a pair or a group, who's letting this note writer or this caller go rogue and, and give away information? I think you're you're kind of, I don't know, like you've not stopped that person from doing it. You're enabling them to potentially give the police clues about you both or the group. But again, I think it's a desire to have some notoriety to for this to feel real. Oh, no, it definitely is. And I, I definitely agree. But you're not being careful enough. No, no, I do agree. I completely agree with you. But I think that innate desire for recognition overrides any logic. And it's almost whether they're having a conscious, logical thought process of, well, if I do this, I might get caught. I don't know. But I think it's almost just, you know, I need the recognition at any cost. So that's why they're getting a bit sloppy here. Yeah. And actually, you're right. The word logic, that would work for us. But there is no logic with this. This is a spree killer. Not at all. Yeah. 
On the morning of October the 22nd, 35-year-old bus driver Conrad E. Johnson was shot and killed as he stopped his bus to pick up passengers, and once again a lengthy, rambling ransom note was found nearby, part of which ominously warned, your children are not safe anywhere at any time. Words every parent longs to hear. Oh my god, I know. Isn't it just absolutely horrific? It's horrific. It's instilling utter terror within this community to say that children are next, basically. You know, we've targeted one already. They would be aware that that child had survived or was critical but stable at that point. And yeah, it's, you know, is is it now going to turn full circle and and it's exclusively going to be children that are targeted? It would have been a terrible, terrible time to be a parent there. Yeah. In the meantime, the police scrambled all units around the district and desperately tried to locate John Muhammad's vehicle. Several traffic stops were conducted on vehicles that matched the Caprice, but so far, no arrests had been made. And then, in the late evening of October 24th, 2002, everything changed. An industrial refrigerator repairman named Whitney Donoghue was driving his van home after a long day's work. As he drove along the interstate, he listened to a radio update which featured a reminder that the police were looking for a dark blue Chevy Caprice with the tag number NDA217. He eventually pulled into a rest stop off Interstate 70 near Myersville, I would say. Did you think it's Myersville? Yeah, Myersville, Maryland, hoping to get some sleep before continuing his journey. But as he parked up, he noticed a dark blue Chevy Caprice occupying a car parking space just a few metres away. He got out to have a closer look and he noticed there were two men fast asleep in the car. Suspecting that the car might well be the one that the police were looking for, he dialed 911. Fuck that, I'd have been out of there. I wouldn't have got out of my car to You don't go and know inspect. for definite though until you've had a little look. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to take that risk. No way. I mean, it is nighttime, that sort of thing. So I guess maybe you feel like you could just pretend you're about to walk to the toilets or something. Yeah. But I know what you mean, because there is a sniper on the loose. Yeah. Very brave of him and amazing. But so am- yeah, I know, so brave. I know I couldn't have done that. Yeah. I'd have probably wanted to just like drive past it and then pull into a different parking space. I don't think I'd get out of my, my truck. I think I'd do that. So... Obviously, he dialed 911 and on the phone, he was asked to confirm the registration number of the car that he'd spotted. And it was, it was NDA 217, a perfect match. So the first officers to attend the scene did so stealthily in unmarked police cars to avoid drawing too much attention. After checking the license plate number, the car was confirmed to be the one that they'd been searching for. And so reinforcements, including several heavily armed SWAT teams, were urgently deployed to the scene. They then quietly positioned their vehicle strategically to box in the Caprice, blocking its escape. Um, As this was all happening, the two men inside the car remained fast asleep. They were completely oblivious. Um, And I just thought, like, can you imagine being Mr. Donoghue and just being like, oh, my God, this is all kicking off now. I'd go to, like, the next rest stop along the way. I would be like, I'm out of here. The, The thing is, at this point, now I know the police are there and it's a bit more of a controlled environment i'd feel a bit safer and i'd i'd actually want to see it all unfold you would wouldn't you yeah i definitely. really would i'd be i'd be watching from a distance i think but maybe they they kind of ushered him away as well cuz maybe a distance wanna... is a good idea but i'd still be scared of a stray bullet these men in the car were thought to be responsible for at least a dozen brutal murders so naturally the police were taking no chances once all escape routes had been sealed off the police quickly put together an arrest strategy 
It was decided that the two men in the car, if they were indeed the snipers, would be heavily armed and unlikely to go down without a fight. So therefore, the best strategy would be to strike them quickly, quietly and aggressively as they slept, rendering them both helpless with little to no time to react. So after being given clearance to engage, a waiting SWAT team moved silently towards the car whilst additional armed officers surrounded the scene and prepared for violence. The time was exactly one o'clock in the morning. So the two men sleeping inside the car were suddenly awoken by the sounds of both the front door windows being smashed simultaneously and before they had a chance to react they had been dragged violently from the car, slammed face down on the tarmac with dozens of guns pointed at them and several police officers pinning them to the ground. Wow, that really is a scene to behold, isn't it? Them face down on the tarmac, a dozen officers with guns pointed at them. It's For me though, I always have that thought of what if it wasn't them? These people have just been dragged out of their car. Like, obviously the police have done incredible work to get to this point and they're not going to do this. Well, you'd like to hope that they're not going to do this unless they have a real reason for coming and getting these people. But I do always think like, God, imagine if it wasn't them. And that does happen. People do get wrongly arrested and, I mean, all sorts worse than that. So, yeah, um, but thankfully it was them. Yeah because the two occupants of the car were quickly identified as John Mohammed and Lee Boyd Malvo. Mohammed became enraged and began to yell and curse and struggle against the arresting officers, whilst Malvo lay there silent, shocked and motionless, pouring with sweat and struck dumb with fear as he gazed up at the police. It was clear that he just hadn't expected to ever be caught. In the car, a stolen Bushmaster XM-15 semi-automatic .223 calibre rifle was discovered. It was equipped with a Bushnell holographic weapon sight, which is said to be effective at ranges of up to 300 metres, which is just absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? That's a third of a kilometre. That's like a quarter of a mile away. Yeah. The boot of the Caprice had been modified to serve as a rolling sniper's nest, so the back seat folded down just wide enough to allow a person access to the trunk, and once inside, the sniper could lie prone and take shots through a small hole created for that very purpose that was made near the licence plate. And that, to me, is just absolutely terrifying because, you know, when they're talking about a van and that side of things, they kind of understood it a little bit more, but you would just see cars on the road all the time, wouldn't you? You just wouldn't think that there's a gun, like the muzzle of a gun pointing through that bit of the car. No, and that hole would be less than an inch in diameter, so... No one's going to notice that. It could be parked. You could be stood right in front of it and you wouldn't know what's actually going on inside that vehicle. So, yeah, incredibly worrying, but does explain an awful lot about how they were able to get away with this. Yeah. The following morning, the police publicly announced that they had their two main suspects in custody. And this news was met with an enormous wave of joyous relief by the people of Washington, D.C., After several weeks of terror, the snipers had killed 10 people and left a further three critically wounded. But now the nightmare was finally over. Can you just, you can just imagine the sense of relief that would just, it would be almost as if, you know, like when um, they say in the jungle, everything goes silent when a a lion or a tiger is going to walk through and everything's quiet. You could almost imagine Washington DC as this like silent, silent place. And then suddenly people start coming out and talking and just being back to normal again. It's a big community, but yeah, it would have really impacted them. And like you say, mm-hmm. the relief would have just been palpable with this. So yeah, a really special day for them. I'm sure that they all remember. 
In custody, John, Mohammed and Lee Malvo were subjected to intense questioning in which both men initially refused to talk. However, after two days, it was young Lee Malvo who finally broke and began to cooperate. Despite helping the police with their investigation, Malvo showed not one ounce of remorse. He began to openly brag about the killings. Brazenly admitted that he had been the one to pull the trigger in every single shooting. He boasted of killing five people in one day on October the 5th and he laughed as he recalled watching the police struggle to keep up with him. He also congratulated himself for being such a great marksman. But you've got a kid here who has had a terrible upbringing, a neglectful childhood and wasn't any good at anything. He was in a homeless shelter at 17 and now he's found something that he's good at and it's a terrible thing. But I can understand why he's boasting about this. Yeah, he has. And he's had Mohammed in his ear the whole time telling him, you're amazing, you're doing this amazing thing. Sir Malvo then shared details about his relationship with John Mohammed, referring to him as his best friend, as a father figure, and describing how he was the one who had originally taught him to shoot. Most damning of all, though, was the revelation that the whole killing spree had been an act of jihad against America off the back of 9-11. Sir Malvo further claimed that the original plan had been to kidnap children from the streets of DC and force them to train as terrorists for future attacks, with the goal being to shut things down across the United States. Whilst imprisoned, Malvo also wrote a number of erratic diatribes in a journal about his personal jihad against the United States. He wrote, I have been accused on my mission. Allah knows I'm going to suffer now. According to Malvo, the police's worst fears had been right all along. The US had been attacked once again. However, by now, detectives working the case had reason to believe that Malvo was lying. So instead, they suggested it was Mohammed, not Malvo, who had was the mastermind behind the plot, that he had originally intended to kill his second ex-wife Mildred, who he felt had estranged him from his children. So according to this hypothesis, the other shootings were intended to cover up the motive for the crime. Mohammed believed that the police wouldn't focus so much on Mildred if she appeared to be a random victim of a serial killer. During the attacks, Mohammed had frequented her neighbourhood where she lived and some of the incidents had occurred nearby. And additionally, he had also earlier made threats against her. Either way, the police now had overwhelming ballistic, forensic and circumstantial evidence that irrefutably linked both men to the murders. And Malvo eventually admitted that Mohammed had also pulled the trigger on several occasions. Due to the high number of murder victims involved, the murder trials of Malvo and Mohammed were spread across multiple hearing dates that began in 2003 and continued all the way into late 2006. Time and time again, jurors were presented with a wealth of overwhelming evidence that compelled them to find John Lee Mohammed and Lee Boyd Malvo guilty of multiple murders, as well as weapons charges and acts of terrorism. The bizarre and erratic diatribes that Valvo had written during his time on remand were also presented as evidence. However, his defence attorneys were quick to downplay them as irrelevant, arguing that because his rants and drawings featured not only figures such as Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, they had also featured characters from the film series The Matrix, so they were nothing more than childish musings. The judge agreed and the evidence was actually dismissed as immaterial. The exact details of how each murder had been so carefully planned and cruelly executed was appalling. However, arguably the most terrifying aspect of the entire case came to light during John Mohammed's May 2006 trial in Maryland. So Lee Boyd Malvo took the stand and confessed to the murders. 
He also revealed that the killings had been part of a much bigger and more terrifying long-term master plan. Malvo admitted that he was lying at the earlier Virginia trial where he'd admitted to being the trigger man for every shooting, and he claimed that he had said this in order to protect John Muhammad from a potential death sentence, and because it was more difficult to obtain the death penalty for a minor. Malvo said that he had wanted to do what he could for the families of the victims by letting the full story be told, and so in two days of testimony he outlined detailed aspects of the shootings with nothing held back. As part of his testimony, Malvo outlined Mohammed's multi-phase terrorism plan, which, according to Malvo, was an act of jihad that held the objective of causing the maximum amount of death, destruction and chaos to the United States. So the plan had actually consisted of three phases. Phase one consisted of the detailed planning, mapping and execution of their kills through the DC area. The strategy then was that after each shooting, they would be able to leave the area quickly and quietly on a predetermined path and move to the next location before the police had time to react. This meticulous military standard level of planning had proven to be massively successful and it's believed to be the reason why the pair managed to evade the police so effectively and for so long. According to Malvo, Mohammed's primary goal in phase one was to kill six white people a day for 30 days. However, Malvo went on to describe how phase one didn't go to plan due to several unexpected problems arising, things like heavy traffic, lack of a clear shot, police presence at their getaway locations. So several kills were either abandoned or amended at the last minute. This impeded their progress and it put them at a greater risk of capture. I always think with um, with aspects like that in, in cases that we cover, where people were an intended target and basically got away with their life sometimes they know about that sometimes they don't i always find that so bizarre as well that somebody could have had a gun pointed at them yeah in october 2002 could have very nearly been taken out by these guys and weren't and don't even know about it and that is just isn't that just so weird that's really horrible yeah i hadn't even thought about that but we did talk about that do you remember the um the case where there was the forest killer. Oh, what is his name? Caldoza, Caldova, Victor Caldova. And he got on the train, didn't he? And he had his gun behind his newspaper and he was thinking, I'll, I'll shoot somebody. And he didn't go through with it at that point. But literally he was sat there ready to do it and waiting to do it. So yeah, it's such a good point. There's how close people could have been to being the, the victim. Now, phase two of the jihadist master plan was a lot more sinister, if that's possible. So there were much more defined targets in mind. Thankfully, though, Malvo and Mohammed were captured just days before they'd planned to implement it. So had they not been caught, they intended to kick off the next step by, first of all, killing a pregnant woman, shooting her in the stomach. Then they would target and kill a Baltimore police officer. At the officer's funeral, they'd planned to detonate several improvised explosive devices, complete with shrapnel. So those explosives then were intended to kill a high number of police, because obviously, of course, in theory, many of them would be in attendance at another officer's funeral. And the last phase, phase three, was to take place during or shortly after phase two. And this was to extort several million dollars from the United States government. This money would be used to finance a larger plan, which was to travel north to Canada, and along the way they'd stop in various homeless shelters and orphanages and recruit other impressionable young black boys with no parents or guidance. Mohammed thought he could act as their father figure too, like he did with Malvo, and, you know, take full advantage of them as well. 
So once he had recruited many young black boys and made his way up to Canada, Muhammad would then set up his own jihadist training camp in the remote Canadian wilderness. There, the captive children would begin their training and conditioning process. Malvo described how John Muhammad intended to train the boys in weapons and stealth, as he had also been taught. And finally... After their training was complete, Muhammad would send them out across the United States to carry out mass shootings in many other cities, just as he had done in Washington and Baltimore. These attacks would be meticulously planned, organised, coordinated, and carried out with ruthless and murderous intent. It was a diabolical scheme to send the country into chaos and feed off the fear that had already been built up after the horrors of 9-11. And you could see that this possibly could have gone ahead and happened. You've seen how he's able to manipulate Malvo. And if he'd have had the opportunity to do that with other young boys, God, can you imagine if this had actually happened? Yeah, it's um, it really could have become something more than it was. And it's all down to that guy, really, that, that spotted the car um, and called the police. Although I think that their days were numbered already at that point. It's just, yeah, I mean, they definitely were, but, oh, it's just horrible to think, like, what if? Yeah, and they could have changed car, they could have moved. Yeah, definitely. But, like, what if that hadn't been stage three? What if the robbery where he, or just teaching Malvo to shoot, he'd then gone and got ten more other boys, he'd trained them all up straight away and then dispatched them in pairs to different cities and this was happening in multiple cities like what if stage three had actually been stage one yeah 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 which it could have been so in light of these appalling revelations the outraged jury in Muhammad's case recommended that he be sentenced to death and Malvo's jury recommended a sentence of life in prison without parole and the judges concurred in both cases in his closing arguments Virginia Supreme Court Judge Donald Lemons commented Muhammad, with his sniper team partner Malvo, randomly selected innocent victims. With calculation, extensive planning, premeditation and ruthless disregard for life, Muhammad carried out his cruel scheme of terror. Muhammad's death penalty was affirmed by the Virginia Supreme Court on April the 22nd, 2005, when it was ruled that he could be sentenced to death because the murder was part of an act of terrorism. This line of reasoning was based on the handwritten note demanding $10 million. The court rejected an argument by defence lawyers that Muhammad could not be sentenced to death because he was not the trigger man in the killings linked to both him and Malvo. Opting to reject the argument, the circuit court judge Mary Grace O'Brien set an execution date by lethal injection for November the 10th, 2009. And Mohammed's legal team petitioned the US Supreme Court to stay his execution, but it was denied. They appealed for clemency from Virginia Governor Tim Kaine, but this was also denied as well. With nobody left to challenge the decision to execute John Muhammad for his crimes, his fate was sealed. And Muhammad was executed by lethal injection at the Greensville Correctional Centre in Virginia on November the 10th, 2009. The execution procedure began at 9am. Muhammad was pronounced dead less than five minutes later, and it was reported that Muhammad's demeanour as he entered the execution chamber was cold and stoic. And when he asked, was asked if he had any last words, he made no reply. 27 people, including victims, family members, witnessed his execution. Malvo's case was later appealed and his sentence was challenged on the basis that it was unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life without parole. 
In 2012, the US Supreme Court ruled that it was indeed unconstitutional, but left open the possibility of individualised sentencing. So as a result, Malvo's sentence was vacated and he was resentenced in 2019 to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. So Lee Malvo is now 37 years old and remains behind bars. Last year in 2022, he was denied parole after federal courts had ordered him resentenced and Virginia had passed a 2020 law creating the possibility of parole for junior offenders serving life sentences. But even though parole is technically a possibility for him on paper, it is extremely unlikely that he will ever get it. The Washington sniper attacks had a significant impact on the Washington DC metropolitan area and the United States as a whole. In addition to the tragic loss of life and the injuries suffered by the victims and their families, the attacks also had a profound effect on the community's sense of safety and security. The attacks led to changes in law enforcement tactics and strategies, and authorities implemented new procedures for responding to similar incidences in the future. They also highlighted the need for greater coordination and communication among law enforcement agencies and led to the development of new protocols and training programmes to improve response times and enhance public safety. Today, a memorial to the victims of the DC area sniper attacks is located at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland, and an additional memorial was constructed in 2014 in the Government Plaza of Rockville, Maryland. And I just think this is such a crazy case isn't it Mark I think spree killers are are just so terrifying anyway but these two on their absolutely horrific mission that they would plan in this three-stage jihad it's it's just something even more terrifying it it is isn't it it's um because I obviously I remember the case at the time but I didn't pay loads of attention to it so there's bits I knew bits I didn't know so I didn't know that Mohammed was executed in the end so I mean we've talked a a lot before about how we feel about capital punishment Um, I'm not going to get into that but I I just think it's interesting that uh, family members of the victims of some of the victims were amongst that congregation of 27 people who witnessed that uh, execution Mm. by lethal injection and it it just makes me think would I would I, I mean, you never know until you're in that situation, of course, but could I sit there and and watch somebody be executed? Possibly if, if they'd executed a member of my family, I guess. But I, I don't know. I just think it's it's still quite a traumatising thing to see, potentially. I, I don't know if I could see that happen. I've had nightmares it about It is so hard to think about, about it, isn't it, know? whether or not you could sit there. I guess it would depend on what they'd done to your loved one I suppose but we are normal people where for us killing somebody is still abhorrent so things like the death penalty are always going to just feel very weird to us and and I think that's mostly because we've just not had it in this country a country we've grown up in we've not had it in this country and within our own culture our entire lives so it's not something we're overly familiar with whereas in America in certain states of course they are so they would have a different attitude towards it so I think part of it is that kind of um, nurture around it that we just don't have it and they do so but Mm. yeah I just think very interesting and I've definitely had I think when I've watched some awful documentaries on um, 
prisoners being executed and the the build up to it i know i've then gone on to have these awful dreams that i'm being executed and it's such a clinical environment if ever you see uh, an mm. execution chamber lethal injection whatever it is it's just so clinical like a hospital but a horrible hospital it's just horrible to see but yeah you know uh justice was served uh, here so uh, it's not a bad thing i guess uh, it stops it happening again. It sends a message, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't know if this is appropriate or not, so you can totally cut it out if it's not. But do you think it's appropriate for me to share with our listeners, as you just talked about dreams, what my dream was the other week, the other day that I mentioned to you? Um, do you think it's appropriate or not appropriate, Mark? What, what, was, what so was the dream? I had a dream, everybody, and I'm going to share it with you because maybe it's not appropriate. Who knows? But whatever. You can't help what you dream about. I had a dream that we had an official letter from the royal house or whatever saying from Prince Andrew that he was actually a really big fan of seeing Red and he really wanted to tell his side of the story and could we come and interview him? So me and Mark were like, yeah, let's pretend that we believe him, but we'll get the actual scoop of how awful and horrible he is. So we were like, yeah, we'll we'll totally go and pretend that we're fans of his too and we'll go and meet him. Um And then we were going to basically have like the inside scoop on how awful he was. But on the way there, he chartered us a helicopter and then he like maniacally appeared out of nowhere, started laughing and then the helicopter crashed and that was when I woke up. So basically he tricked us into thinking that he was a fan of seeing Red so that he could be on the show. But actually he was planning to kill us off because he knew that we thought he was a horrible person. So there we go. Isn't that a horrible thing of him to do? It's horrible, but it's really such a weird dream. dream. It was because I'd been watching the coronation and he was there and everyone uh, booed him when he turned up. So I think that's probably why it was in my head. Not a nice guy, is he? I don't think so. Um, Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Um, Let us know your thoughts about this episode. As always, we would love to hear it, particularly as it was a two-parter and um, a really in-depth look at, at this case. As we said earlier, if you are able to support us on Patreon, we would really appreciate that. All you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And we'll be back next week for another episode. And then we are on a mid-season break for a couple of weeks before coming back we for are. the last half of season nine. So, Season so, yeah, nine, it's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? It is. We've been going four, we're nearly at five years, Bethan. Can you believe it? Crikey. You've put up with me this long. (laughs) Exactly. Ditto. And we've got lots of exciting things planned. And uh, yeah, you'll see a new logo from us uh, in a few months time. Season five, season season 10 is going to come with some very cool changes. So we'll see you next week for another case. Uh, Yeah, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.